Last week, because of our joint ABF, we didn't get to discuss anything. So I, if you guys want, we've got two weeks' worth of material to discuss. Any questions you have, or we can just sit here with a long, awkward silence. I'm voting for the awkward silence. So. Oh, great. You think I need to clean up the, the grammar? How I act. My mom's. She is? Mom's here now. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Any questions? Okay, JP. So last week, one of the arguments that you had, as I understood it, was that the 12 were sent out preaching the kingdom of God, and that was meaning to say that the king has arrived. And then um, in the next paragraph, it talks about Herod and the reason why he brought up this question, but who is this, is because of the 12 going out and preaching the kingdom of God. I guess what I was confused about is why there still is confusion. If 12 are preaching the kingdom of God, why is there still confusion who Jesus is? That's a great question. Certainly for the reader, it's not terribly confusing. I mean, Luke has done an excellent job in arranging the material so that we get a clear, cogent, and coherent picture. But the confusion is undeniable. I, I would guess, my, my immediate off-the-cuff thought would be, popular anticipation it, it, it when you know things wrong it's hard to unknow them and if you've got a certain picture of who the messiah is going to be and jesus isn't quite lining up with that and you also can tell like in john one um that the the people sent to interrogate john the baptist are you the prophet are you elijah are you know they're they're not understanding that some of these people are you the messiah well the, we know the prophet from deuteronomy 18 is jesus and the messiah is jesus they clearly didn't, because they're like, are you the prophet, or are you Elijah, or are you the Messiah? So I th would basically say it's confusion over the coming of the Messiah, the confusion over how many people were coming. There's some evidence that, um, as we notice, threads in the Old Testament that, that indicate a suffering Messiah and threads that indicate a triumphal Messiah. Apparently, some of the Jews thought maybe two Messiahs would come at separate times. So there just seems to be a lot of confusion over who this coming one should be. So everyone's excited because for 400 years, God has been silent. And then starting with the angel coming to Mary and Zechariah, and then the ministry of John the Baptist, that 400-year silence is ended. And something exciting is afoot, but they don't seem to know who he is entirely. I mean, part of why is there confusion? I don't know. Luke's clearly highlighting there is confusion. The people are confused. Herod's confused. The disciples are confused. The only people who aren't confused so far are the demoniacs. No confusion there. And... The issue is going to be settled by the middle of chapter 9. Settled with Peter, and then God putting his stamp on top of that. And, and the other thing I didn't point out is, and this then is going to close a major section of Luke's gospel. When I think of Luke's gospel so far, we've maybe covered two sections. The introduction, the birth announcements, and then starting in chapter 4, Jesus arrives, well, really the end of 3 where he's baptized, but Jesus then arrives on the scene, he's tempted, and then he enters into his Galilean ministry. We are just about to end that. Um, when Jesus comes down from the night of transfiguration, go to Luke, go to Luke 9. Um, 
the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry and the end of settling the issue of who is he is, is done by, by, by Luke 9.50. Because in 9.51, we now settle up for the next and the largest section of the book, the journey to Jerusalem. So from 9.50 all the way to chapter 19, we actually enter into the crucifixion narrative. Again and again and again in Luke, it follows the theme. So in 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from here all the way to 19, look at verse 57, as they're going along the road. Um, and con- I'm just skipping along, but as they were going, or on the way to Jerusalem, as they were going. Um, chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, because he's on his way to Jerusalem. Um and for the rest of the book, there's going to be constant reference to that. In other words, the rest of the book, the next 10 chapters are in the shadow of heading to Jerusalem. And he leaves Galilee, and now we're in, for the first time, next week we're going to see Jesus clearly identify, I'm going to die. Luke hasn't mentioned that yet. Um, and so this mission of going to Jerusalem to die is then what takes over the narrative. So up to this point, it's kind of meant Jesus, who is he? Let's take a look at him. Let's figure out who he is. Let's, now it's, we know who he is, and now he's on mission, and now we're just going with him to the cross. So in Luke's arrangement, JP, we're just closing out the who is he? And now by the time we get to 950, and God the Father spoken, and Peter spoken, the demoniac spoken, everyone's spoken, now we should know who he is, now watch what he does. Now now it's just mission. But why the why the people are confused beyond that, I don't know. Anyone, I mean, if anyone has any thoughts, Mike to Zeb. Well, there was no, like, there was no way to have, like, a video of <laughs> one of these people, was one there of YouTube? the disciples. Yeah, there was no YouTube, there was no internet, there was no way for people to get an exact word for word, and even yeah. in, t- in a, our world today, that doesn't necessarily happen. But you don't have like a word for word transcript of the message that they're sending out. So a lot of this is like you got to think is like second, third, fourth, fifth hand information. Yeah. I heard he said this. I heard he said that, and then it's like playing telephone. Well, and in John's account of the feeding of the five thousand, do, do you know how the people respond to the feeding of the five thousand in John's account? They want to crown him king but for all the wrong reasons. They want to crown, I mean, free food, and if you're going to go fight the Romans, here's somebody who can raise you from the dead. I will fight in the army of a man who can raise me from the dead if I get killed. And he has to tell them, my kingdom's not of this world. No, no, no. So they, they, here's, you know, Luke omits that. That's not germane to the, the, what he wants us to see. But there's apparently, some of these people want to make him king, but for all the wrong reasons, and Jesus wants nothing to do with it. Um, because there's misunderstandings of who and what the Messiah will be and do when he comes. So, yeah. And as, and as Zeb pointed out, it's not like you could go watch the video. The potential of corruption of the message, or even suspicion that the message you've heard is accurate if you don't hear it firsthand. You know? So, I mean, think about it. Somebody walks in here like, guess what? I was at this funeral. <laughs> and then, like, yeah, right. So there's a certain amount of, if you went there firsthand and you're hearing about it, yeah, your interest is raised, but some of the things we've seen Jesus do are so remarkable. I would expect a certain amount of incredulity on the part of the listeners. So, confused, anyway, that, w- that would be some of my thoughts. Elsa. Could it also be that um, if 
if he was the Messiah, they thought through the implications of that in their own lives, what that's going to mean. I think when you hear people debate against God, even today, if they have to accept that there is a God and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the implications of that yeah. just makes them know because what that's going to mean, I have to do now. Well, I, yeah, I think that's also another factor, that there's a certain amount of willful confusion that comes from the darkness of sin. I mean, because we know in John 3, the light has come into the world, um, but men do not come to the light, but love the darkness, because their deeds are evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to it, lest his deeds be exposed. So, a person who is not repentant, a person who um, hates the light, is going to want to come up with all sorts of reasons to be confused with who Jesus is. So we, we have built into us, hardwired, an intentional obfuscation, an intentional confusement that I'll, I'll I mean, I'll, yeah, we're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so that could also be part of it is there's probably a, a bunch of these people who aren't terribly interested at a foundational level of really knowing who he is because they've already smelled some of what he's about and some of what his ethics are and some of what he demands of his followers. And I mean, I mean, how many of you guys are excited to hear turn the other cheek? Love your enemies. I mean, so as Jesus is teaching this, yeah, there's some people who are smelling what he's stepping in, and, and there's an intentional confusing. Uh, I'm really excited about the Messiah who comes and gives me everything I want and beats all my enemies down. This, this guy who's telling me to love my enemies and turn the cheek, not so much. Um, so there's that too. Yep. Other thoughts on that or other different questions entirely? Alyssa. Okay, you never answered the question that I asked at your house on Friday. Okay. So. What was the question that you asked at my house on Friday? Um, let me find the passage. It was in Acts 12, um, when Peter escapes from, or when Peter's rescued from prison, and then he goes to the house, and the servant mm. girl came to answer, and runs to everyone, reporting that he's standing at the gate, and they say to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, so they kept saying, it is his angel. And I wanted to know what that meant. What? What's the passage again? Acts Holy. 12. Acts 12, um, it's in verse 15. JP, what does angel mean? Angelos. Yeah, um, angel messenger, apostle sent one. So we angel is a word that we only use in Christian circles. It's, it's transliterated. We don't even translate it. It's just one of those cases where angel, like baptize. And so you never use baptize outside outside of religious circles because it's simply a Greek word that Christians only ever use. Whereas in Greek, it's just a common word for dunk, dip, immerse. So it's Duncan John, John the immerser. Baptist donuts, exactly. Um, likewise, this is sent one, so it can mean an, a, what we would call an angelic. So we use angel only to speak of supernatural, non-corporeal beings um, of the spirit world. It's possible that's what they mean. It's also possible they mean his messenger or some, Peter sent somebody. Um, but there's also seems to be a thought. Go, go to Hebrews one. Um, 
you know this notion that you have a guardian angel? It has some, some loose warrant in Scripture. Um, and uh, i got a friend of mine who likes to joke that because of all the danger he gets into, his guardian angel is like, you know, an alcoholic who can't relax and just, yeah. Again? Oh, man. But he's basically driving his guardian angel to drink. Um, it's basically what he, he has a wittier way of saying it, and I think he's listening right now, but, you know, he'll have to tell me how he does it. Um, well, he's not listening right now, but to him it'll be right now. This is weird. It's, it's timey-wimey, timey-wimey, you know. Okay. Hebrews chapter 1. Okay. Um, so here we go. Um... No, no, it's not, it's not. He's not even Hebrews one. Are there? An, uh, no, it's not one. No, one fourteen talks about angels, no doubt. That's not what I'm thinking of. Yes, who are inheriting salvation? There you go. No, that's part of it. But it's when Jesus talks about the children are not their angels ever before the face of the Father. You combine those two. So you can combine Hebrews one fourteen. Um, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So the angels, the spirit beings, have have a correspondence in part. Part of what they're given in stewardship to do is to serve us in some context, right, in, in regards to us. And then when Jesus, um, someone with a smartphone wears the, the children on his knee and they're, they're saying their angels are ever before the face of my father. Somebody. I know that's really... Come on. Just face Father Gospel. You just give me face and Father. Matthew 18.10. There we go. Okay. In heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So that's the basis for the notion that at least at least one angel is directly assigned you. Um, so it also could be the thought that I, I, I don't know about the Jewish superstition at the time. Um, clearly, what they're saying is his angel is is not anything we have a whole lot of precedent for in Scripture. But maybe it's the thought either that this is actually just a messenger of Peter. It's not Peter. Somebody's got a message from Peter. You silly servant girl. It's just his messenger, or. Peter's dead and his angel... I don't know why they'd think his angel, even if he had one, would show up. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, so... No, it's a good question, but that's about as far as we can go, I can go at least, with, with angels and people and stuff. So, sorry. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions, complaints in general this morning? Anything? At half an hour, people. Come on now. No. I mean, I got some things we can cover, but. You okay? We can do that. We can do that. We can do that. Yeah, no, no. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. Um, okay. Final chance. We're to go back to spiritual gifts in the body. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Hold on. I need the microphone. I was just going to say, since you ended your sermon a little early, maybe you should just end ABF a little early. 
half an hour is a bit more than a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I might let you on two or three minutes early, but... Okay. That would, that would be too disruptive to the people downstairs, Zach. That wouldn't be kind. Uh, no, it wouldn't. Um, yeah. We could go look at the new $65,000 move. Okay, so we are any. No one has any questions in general. We're to go to spiritual gifts. Going once, going twice. Please turn in your Bibles to First Corinthians twelve. First Corinthians twelve is a fantastic chapter um, dealing with the purpose of spiritual gifts and the purpose of the body and its functioning together. And people get so caught up in it. It's good for us to study, but I'm, I'm assuming now we're moving beyond. Um, we, we, we've talked about the gift of languages, talked about um, some of the miraculous gifts, and uh, I just want to get back to the general purpose of the gifts in general. Um, what their purpose is, because people get so caught up on these things that we can miss the main point. Um, so let me just do some review. Why does the Holy Spirit give a manifestation of the Spirit to each according to His will? Why does He do that? Yes, to build up the church. Look at verse 7. To each, there's the individuality, there's the unit to everyone, not some people, but to each is given manifestation of the Spirit. Why? Common good. I, my, whatever giftedness I'm given is not for me, it's for y'all, and vice versa. Which is the foundational argument he's going to make for why we need each other. And one of my foundational problems with people that want to argue they have self-edifying gifts the most common explanation I get given for the purpose of prayer languages is it builds them up. They go in their prayer closet and they pray in their prayer language. And I just look at 1 Corinthians twelve seven and I say, yeah, I have a hard time with that. Um, God's given you a spirit, you don't a gift where you don't need anybody else. You just you and the spirit go and you get edified. That seems entirely contrary to the purpose of gifts that I see in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, yes, Carol. Microphone. Mike, the man is a mic. Just uh, adding to what you just said, I don't think anybody said this. First Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another mm. as good stewards of God's very grace. And then he goes goes through. Yeah. Um, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves has one yeah. who serves by the strength that God supplies. Mm-hmm. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Yeah. So there it is. Use it to serve one another as a good steward or caretaker of God's very grace. There's a variety of gifts, 
But the purpose, if you've got a gift, is serve others with it. Okay? 1 Peter 4.10. Yes, yes. And I, someone could try to build an argument that way, which is, no, no. Someone could build an argument that way that, well, my spiritual gift is... Per- then don't tell me it's primarily to edify yourself. Tell me, no, I'm, I'm a prayer warrior for the body, and that's what I'm doing. But would I, would I ask... What's the purpose? Well, I feel so encouraged when I pray in this other language. Okay, then you're not describing it in terms of the benefit to the body. You're still describing it in terms of the benefit to yourself, which is where I'd say, eh. Right. But we're not. We're moving on past the, the gift of languages. We've talked about all that. Um, I just want to get to the general purpose here. Um, so 1 Corinthians 12 because remember, Corinth had factions. We knew that from chapter 1. We got the I'm of Paul, and I'm of Peter, and I'm of Jesus factions. And these were not doctrinal factions. How do we know they're not doctrinal factions? Because if they were, the I'm of Jesus faction would be right. Right? No, fair enough. These, the, let, me, let me prove this. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Now, this is important because people come along and they say, oh, you say you're a Calvinist, or you say you're a whatever. And didn't Paul say not to do that? That's not what's going on in 1 Corinthians 1 at all. It's about style wars. It's how do they do ministry. And so um, in chapter 1, Paul says in verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, there's quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they are baptized in my name. Now, if this was a doctrinal issue, I think we'd all be like, no, I just follow Jesus. I don't follow Paul. You know. And then as you read, it becomes clear what the issue is. Look at verse 17. It's going, to, it's going to start out with all those people. It's going to narrow down to Paul and Apollos. But chapter 3, it's going to narrow down to Paul and Apollos. And what's the difference? We know from Acts, Apollos is a skilled Greek orator. He's trained in Greek oratory. The, the mode, the respectable, powerful mode of speech of his day. And we know from Paul's letters that his personal presence in speech are viewed as contemptible. And here's what Paul says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the words of eloquent wisdom. Look how chapter 2 starts. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to proclaiming the testimony of God to you with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. It's all about style. Apollos is a powerful rhetorical speaker trained in the, the word craft of his day. And in comparison, Paul is not. And basically what happens is when Paul shows up into town to preach or teach, people are kind of like, hey, couldn't you kind of talk like, couldn't we get Apollos back in here? He's way, I, I fall asleep when Paul teaches and he stutters. And, you know, why don't we just, who needs Paul? we got Apollos, that should be good enough. And that's the issue. And so their, their, their personality, ministry styles, that people talk differently, people have different styles of ministry. Some pastors will tell more jokes. Some, some are more fiery. There's a range um, of, of how God uses different tools. And the, the danger for us is to say, well, I, I, I want it this way and this way only. You know, um, 
And so that's what's going on here. These are not doctrinal divisions. These are personality cliques. Um, people really like the way Peter teaches. That's Cephas in that list. And so these are the divisions he's dealing with. And so Paul lays that foundation in chapter 1. Then back in chapter 12, he's now trying to hit it head on. Um, and he's trying to attack these divisions. And this, this issue of divisions is rife everywhere because we all are hardwired to A, want to be comfortable, B, want to be around people just like us, and C, want to be suspicious or fearful of people who are different from us. Anyone, and that, that, anyone want to challenge that that doesn't come absolutely naturally to us? Yes? No. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. No, and I, I found the same thing happened to me. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, fair enough. No, I, this this actually that first convicted me. When I was at Grace Community Church because John MacArthur is such a good speaker that even though when he'd take off seven or eight weeks in the summer, he'd speak at conferences, he'd work on books, and so usually the late summer you'd get other guys preaching. Um, but they're no John MacArthur. I mean, these are faithful, solid guys, and yet I'd find myself like checking, like, who's coming? To, okay, do you want to go to both services? And I just got really convicted. I had no, com- I had no complaint with the quality of the teaching, the accuracy of the teaching. Um, but I remember there was one guy who was his personal assistant for a while, who I will not name, godly guy, but he had southern drawl, and he put me to sleep. And I remember just maybe the spirit brought it to mind one day. As I thought, you know, in the book of Ezra, Israel stands out in the Sinai wilderness while the book of Deuteronomy is read out loud. And then the Levites go around to explain it. And I'm complaining because I get to sit in an air-conditioned auditorium while a guy with a southern drawl speaks. I'm like, cupcake, you need to grow up. And, you know, just... But that's what's going on there. Um, because attendance would drop at Grace by thousands when they knew MacArthur wasn't going to be there. Um, I mean, no, because they got like seven or 8,000 showing up on a Sunday, and they'd, they'd almost have if people knew in advance he was going to be out. Um, that's the type of stuff Paul's dealing with. But, but on top of that, not just do we like certain styles of ministry, but even amongst ourselves, and this is what's going on, because certain people have certain gifts, and their gifts are better than the other gifts, and you're going to find that out in 1 Corinthians 14. It's going to boil down to the, the, the people speaking in languages and the people prophesying, and they, their groups are contrasting and setting up, and Paul's got to tell them to stop it. Because I want to be around people like me. I'm suspicious of people who aren't like me. I want to be comfortable. <coughs> And so that's why we get, I mean, I think one of the most unhealthy developments in church are like, you know, the, the young person service, the old person service, the, the black gospel service, the punk rock service, the it, traditionals, whatever. Because the whole point is not, hey, go, that, that's, that's marketing and salesmanship and that's, that's capitalism. You deserve to have it your way. That is not the motto of the church. That's Burger King. We get that confused sometimes, right? Uh, have it your way. No, but you get the appeal. Can I just go to the church where everyone's dealing with what I'm dealing with? Everyone's got, you know, you know, young kids or everyone, wherever you're at in your life, and then, then I never have to listen to something talk about a problem that I can't relate to. Then I don't really have to deal with interests that don't interest me. I mean, you see how easy that is, how nice that is. 
You never have to grow. You never have to learn to love people. It's wonderful. And Paul smashes that. And let's just keep reading in 1 Corinthians 12. That's the purpose of the gifts. The gifts are to transcend and go beyond that to enable us who are a motley crew of unlikely friends and family members to, to live and coexist as a body. That's the whole point. Verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given the Spirit of utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge through the same Spirit. Now notice how he's going to keep hammering the same Spirit. You can't pit my gift from the same Spirit against your gift from the same Spirit. He's trying to identify the source of all of these gifts is the same person. Um, verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to distinguish other workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Okay. Then, What's going to follow are implications. If that's true, for just as the body is one and as many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in or by or with, right? You could translate it any all of those n, right? In one spirit, we were all baptized, dipped, dunked, immersed. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. This is all in the context of a discussion of spiritual gifts. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, it would be the sense of smell. So I'm just going to pause. He's he going to anticipate this problem one of two ways. There's two ways this type of thinking can permeate us. One, we can feel insecure. So here he first anticipates one part of the body saying, I'm not like that other part of the body, so I don't fit in. And I've seen that happen. No, I've seen that happen where people are like, you know, um, this person next to me has totally got it all together, and I'm a hot mess, and so I probably shouldn't come here because everyone here has got it together. Yeah, yeah, that's the first news flash, news flash from my vantage point. Everybody ate all got it together. Um, but secondly, that 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 whole thinking, that fearful thinking, or you know, and this could happen. I mean, if you're sitting in church and everyone, you know, you're you just notice people who aren't like you and you're different, and you can be tempted to think, well, I mean, I don't fit in here. I should go find foot church because this is clearly hand church. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I was that funny. Okay. Okay. I'll take I'll take him where I can get him. So okay. Um, but that's the first. The first he first deals with the insecurity of the person who thinks they don't fit in. Okay. And then I want you to notice the basis of the argument. Look at verse eighteen. But as it is, who arranged the members of the body? God. As it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. God determined what your giftedness would be, and God placed you in the body. And if you th basically what he's arguing is, if you say, I don't fit in, this isn't for me, you're saying God made a mistake. 
and you know better than God. By the way, he's going to deal with it from both sides, the people who are insecure and the people who are judgmental. And he's going to use the exact same argument for both of them. God arranged the body, so stop it. Because look at verse 21. Um, okay, so then verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. One of the things I try to point out is the glory of the body, the strength of the body, is its diversity. If, if you're sitting here and you feel like you don't fit in, we need you precisely because of that. There's a very real danger of bodies becoming more and more narrow in their, in their demographic, where you get sort of white, middle-class church. No one intended it to become that. But it just kind of became that over time. Right? Or young church, you know, there's a young pastor, so young people. I mean, no one intentionally did it. It just sort of happened. And so churches get that. When they do that, they're weak. They're not strong. So if you show up to a church, or if you're here and you're like, man, no one else here is like me, like, please, we need you. We become, we become weaker without you. Flip it. So then he flips it around. So first he deals with the part of the body who's like, do I really fit in? Am I really necessary? Am I really needed? And he says, God arranged the body. Then he flips it the other way. He's going to deal with it from both sides. And all of this is in the context of spiritual giftedness. That's why I'm trying to lay this out. Um, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So before we were envisioning a part of the body saying, I'm not needed. Now it's another part of the body saying, you're not needed. So it's flipped. It's 180 degrees flipped, right? So what's he say to that? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weakest are indispensable. That's my second point. If, if you think you or somebody else is unnecessary and weak, that's even more reason why we need them. The parts of the body that are weak are indispensable. Which is to say, um, the parts of your body that are most fragile and least presentable are the parts that you can't live without. Kidneys, right? Um, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. That's that exact same argument again. God arranged the body, so stop it. Giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Why? That there may be no division in the body. God has done it this way, and he's arranged Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, men and women, and people of all different types of backgrounds and all different types of, of socioeconomic and educational and age demographics. He's done all of that. There might be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all Rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then, after all of that, he moves on back to spiritual gifts. You got head wrapped around this. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then we get 1 Corinthians 13. And you, you got to rip it out of the marriage context. Everyone wants to read this at weddings. That's great. This is much more in the context of, hey, dummies, knock it off and get along. 
right? No, that's the context of this. It's, it's a body where, where slaves and slave masters and Jews and Greeks and men and women and old people and young people are trying to coexist in a church. And there's factions. And part of the problem with the factions is they're taking these gifts that are meant to serve everybody and getting proud about it and walking around. Or some people are like, I don't have a good gift. you know. And they got all this going on. And then he interrupts the discussion of gifts because he picks it right back up in 14. Doesn't he? Pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We're right back there. And 13 is this comma in between. We're supposed to be one body, guys. You, you need each other, guys. If you don't think you need each other, you're wrong. God arranged the body. Stop it. Here's what it's supposed to be doing. And then what's the glue that holds all that together? Love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. You eyes and feet, be patient with each other. Is the concept. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All in the context of factious, quarreling, divisive, proud, judgmental people who can't seem to get along. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Not, not, not a wedding but like a church meeting. <laughs> and what he's basically saying is if you, if you think you know stuff, and if you think you can teach stuff, but you can't love the knucklehead sitting down the aisle from you, you fool yourself. If you can't love the person sitting over there, and you can't love the other person over here who's not like you, and yeah, I know they're not like you, and yeah, I know. If you can't love those people, then stop thinking you know anything. And then he picks back up in spiritual gifts. That, that's the purpose. We've got five minutes. Go to Ephesians 4. We'll close here. Because um, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to facilitate the unity of the body. And this is why it takes faith. Because honestly, if somebody shows up here and they're healthy and they're wealthy and they're well-educated, they might say to themselves, I have no need of these people, especially that person over there who's not. Right? If you just look with human eyes, i got everything I need. What do I need you for? What, what destroys that argument, well, that person is supernatural gifting from the living God the things you vitally need. Oh, you see how that levels the playing field. You, we, you know, either we believe that or we don't. Because the temptation is, well, that person's wearing nice clothes and that person seems to get it together. They have no need of me and I don't need them. And you've got to believe, no, the Holy Spirit knows exactly what this body needs. The Holy Spirit knows precisely what this body needs. The Holy Spirit has distributed, according to his will, what this body needs. Now, you can either be like, no, I'm all set, God, I don't need that. Or you can believe it. Okay, Ephesians 4. If I had a passage tattooed on my eyelids, it would be this. Um... No, this is, this is the end game of the church right here. Ephesians 4, verse 11. We're picking it back up in spiritual gifts. Why are the spiritual gifts? What for? For what purpose? Okay. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, 
to, there's purpose, there's telos, there's goal, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then he uses apposition. He says it again a different way. What's that, you say? The building up of the body of Christ. So he gave all these gifts and these gifted people for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. To what, how, how, how far do we have to work at this? You know, maybe we could get done. I think we could finish up this project. Until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We have more work to do. To mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Then he speaks it negatively. Why do you want to build this body up and mature it? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then how exactly does this work, Paul? You're still too esoteric. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Do you notice the specificity there? How many of the joints are necessary? How many parts have to be working properly? We need each other. There's no notion of, you know, to heck with the toes and the fingers, the feet are going to go grow and mature by ourselves. No, you're not. Either the whole body is growing or none of the body is growing. Which every part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, that's it. That's, that's, that's the purpose of spiritual gifts. That's the purpose of the body. That's what we are to be endeavoring to do. We'll do it in a myriad of different ways. We'll do it in a myriad of different giftedness. But that is the goal, the end game, the purpose of it all. Why spiritual gifts? That. That picture. Yeah? Yes, Elsa. We need a microphone. We need a microphone. You got her. Just a quick question for yeah. clarification. Uh, when it says prophecy, huh? it means preaching. Oh, I don't think so. No. It could, but that's a stretch. I hear people make that argument all the time. It's a bad argument. Um, it, it could. Prophecy is forthtelling, but most commonly prophecy is done spontaneously. Um, it's, it's, it's very little use of it being done as teaching. What you get mostly in the church are two things in the church, prophecy and teaching. Um, prophecy is forth-telling. So it, it can be not spontaneous. It can be like, go tell Pharaoh this. Okay. Well, God told Moses what to tell Pharaoh. Then he went and told Pharaoh. So I guess when he was telling Pharaoh, he already knew what he was going to say, right? Um, but it's forth-telling. It doesn't have to be predictive in the future. I mean, we, we sometimes think wrongly prophecy is predicting the future. It doesn't have to be that at all. It's, it's forth-telling truth. But the much more common word for pre what you would call preaching would be either the, um, the proclamation, the heralding language, or the teaching language. So I, I think those who want to narrow and say, oh, pr prophecy just means preaching, I think that's a stretch. Um, it, there's some overlap. So there's maybe prophetic elements in what I do on Sunday morning. I, I certainly don't think you could say it's a one-to-one -one perfect little fit at all. I, I am aware of some people trying to make that argument. I just, it's, I'm unconvinced by it. Um, our time is up, and I'm going to let you on on time. So we'll see you all next week. And then we'll move into the work of the Holy Spirit in the church beyond spiritual gifts. So thank you very much.